I have to remove all of these albums. Okay, um, we, we do have some stuff to do in addition to just doing that, although some of you are like, that's, well, that's enough, that's all I need to do, and I also have to unroll my, my pants because they're so distracting. Um, man, what a great morning. I, uh, just as our team was praying before and getting kind of squared away for um, this morning, there's just so much emotion and thought about that's going into today, and um, I'm, I'm grateful for this church, I'm grateful for you, I'm grateful that you're a church that responds in worship and is learning how to be even more intentional in it. Um, well, all right, let me gather everything back here. Um, we are in a series, it's called Unleash the Impossible, and over the past couple of weeks we've been talking about what that looks like, we've been imagining what um, the future of what God might do here, not just to us or at us, but through us in the community. So we've been looking at this for the past couple of weeks. This conversation grew out of a, a leadership conversation in which our volunteers were like, hey, why don't we take this whole thing to the church? And so we did. So this is what that is. And so we're in the third week of it. And one of the things we've been looking at is that we've keep, we keep coming back to is this verse right here. This is John 14, 12. Jesus, right before he's about to go to the cross, he tells his disciples, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Now, just a reminder, we say this every single week during the series, which is Jesus has done some pretty incredible things with his disciples. They've seen him do all kinds of amazing stuff. And Jesus says right before the cross, you're going to do even better, even greater things, which means God has enabled the people who follow him to do greater things than even the stuff that Jesus showed and demonstrated during his life and ministry, which is really what we all think of as that's impossible, which is thusly why we have a series called Unleash the Impossible. So I'm excited to get into today. We have a lot to get through that I really want to get through, and I'm very, very excited about it. So let's pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into today's message. Jesus, um, you know us. You call us to you. You're a, um, you're a gracious God who gives to us an innumerable amount of second chances. Father, and we need them. Jesus, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to give and to acknowledge joy today. Jesus, might you um, be more apparent to us than any other day? Might we have a greater understanding of our own purpose, that we might live it out, that you might see us respond to you as the most important and central thing in our entire lives? Lord, we need healing as we talk about it in this week, in this moment, even as we look forward to next week. We need healing for brokenness in our soul. And so, Lord, for just a moment, as we pause every single week, just for about 10 seconds, would you speak to us about how much you know us and you love us and desire to be close with us? So for just a few minutes, speak to us, Father. Jesus, it is in, in your name and it is with great joy and with expectant hope that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to zoom through some stuff. It's really, really critical, so hang with me. We're going to go pretty quick and we're going to go around and around. Some of you are going to be like, again, where are we going? The plane's going to run out of fuel. It won't run out of fuel, I promise. We'll land the plane. Um, but here's what we want you to do. If you, if you uh, came in, you got a bulletin. In that bulletin is an outline. If you want to follow along in that outline, great. If you like, just want to look on the screen, that's great. everything you'll need will be on the screen. As you're doing that, um, maybe you guys have had this experience, which is kind of a, it's an experience kind of full of terror. 
which is that your kids say something to you, they say a question to you from an adjacent room in which it looks about like this. They say the phrase, after they've discovered something, what's that for? Now, that doesn't sound like a scary phrase. It doesn't sound like a scary question. It doesn't sound like something all that frightening. It doesn't sound like it's all that big a deal. But if you start thinking about the things that kids discover in adjacent rooms, that you wonder, what have they discovered? And are they going to try it out on their sister? Like, here's the head, like the hair clippers, you know, like, you hear the sound. Oh my gosh, put that down, you know, because invariably what happens, whether it's scissors or it's permanent markers or it's sharp objects or whatever else it might be, invariably what will happen is kids are going to try to find the reason for that thing. They're going to try to figure out why it's there and they're going to try and experiment all kinds of things until they figure out why that thing is there. Like, why do we have this in our house? What's that thing for? Whatever it might be. Now, for my kids, and probably for you, if you have ever been asked this question by your kids who are holding something that you go, please don't try to use that, uh, is that you have an answer for what it's for. And generally, it's, that's for something important, but it's not for you. You can't use that. That's going to actually do some damage. You're going to wreck something. You're going to blow something up, so you can't play with that. Now, I have answers for lots of those things. Some of those things are accurate. Like, my kids ask me now questions. Like, my son checked out a book from the, um, from the library. It's just called The Korean Conflict. He's 11. And he's like, Dad, did you know about, you know, Kim Jong-il and all stuff? And I'm like, well, yeah, I did, yes. You know, like, and he's like quizzing me on the Korean conflict. Now, he's asking, so generally when they ask me about certain things, most of the time up till about now in my life, I've been able to give an answer. And most of the time they've been accurate answers. Now it's starting to get to a place where it's like, Dad, what type of cloud is fog? And I'm like, I don't know, stratus. He's like, no, no, it's, you know, cumulonimbus, obviously. You know, like, I don't know these answers anymore. <laughs> But there's some utility or purpose or design for all these things because they have a specific use. Now, when we, project, we actually take that same question and we look at human beings, the answer gets a little more difficult. What's that for? What are, what are we for? What's this all about? What are we doing here? It's a much more complicated question, isn't it? What's our utility? What's our meaning? Now, the answer to that question is the most unlikely thing. The answer to that question is something that's so surprising it's something that people have, ha, will have missed and continue to miss throughout all of time. And it's also, the answer to that question is also something everybody in here already intuitively knows without even trying. They already, you already know the answer. And I want to take a look at what that looks like. So we'll start in Psalm 95. If you want to follow along, we'll be in Psalm 95 throughout the service. And here's what it looks like. We'll go through it all together and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 95, 1 through 2. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Next. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, Lord our maker. For he's our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, this is like, this is one of those passages that kind of people come back to, pastors come back to a lot. It's one of those things that informs a lot of about what we're all about all the time. And I want to break it down for you a little bit, okay? So stay with me. Here we go. This is verse 1 and 2 again. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Now, when you look at this verse, this is like what people would typically say. This is kind of the quintessential Bible verse on what we would refer to as the part of the church service that's neither the announcements nor the teaching part. We call that the worship, right? 
This is the, for some of us, it's just like coffee drinking background music, you know. But this is what we think about what happens in a church service. And for most people, for most people, unfortunately, there is a place for this. There's a place where the, where the songs belong is somehow in the church service while I'm getting my coffee, while I'm sitting down. And maybe if we have enough time, I'll respond and sing at the end because that's kind of what we do. But it has a place. I had a friend in high school who, you know, he's great. His, his, his mom had discovered, um, she had you know, started going to church. I think we were in junior high school and she started to really, really started to get excited about it. And so she would, I did not listen, in my house, we did not grow up, I did not grow up listening to like Christian music all the time. We just didn't, we didn't have any of it. So, but she started to get really excited about it. So she would, she would drive us, me and my buddy Jason, all over the place. And she would listen to this music that I'd never really heard much of before. And she, I'm, I am not exaggerating. I'm, I'm, I'm firmly convinced that 95% of the time she was driving, her eyes were closed. And literally it's by the power of the Holy Spirit himself that we did not die. Because she would just, I mean, listening to these songs, I mean, it was this kind of stuff, the whole, I mean, it was like, and I was like, there's a place for that, <laughs> and it's not while we're driving. I'm, I'm 13 years old, and I don't think you're supposed to be doing that. Oh my gosh, Mrs. K, watch out for that. Okay, God, you're awesome. You're, I'm there. That's right there. I became a Christian in her car because of that. I was so afraid. <laughs> there was a part of her that said, yes, there's this place where we sing songs, but why would I not extend it to all parts of my life? Now, granted, I, I, I think she's you get what I'm going to say? She, she might have been onto something, not on something. That might have been also true. But she might have been onto something. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should try driving with your eyes closed and just put God to the test. Like, God, I just heard him say we should drive with our eyes. No, no, no. Okay, you, you do that on your own. That's not me telling you to do that. But I think what she was pointing to, which I didn't realize when I was 13, was that there is something bigger about, about worship than just the part of the thing that we do in a service. Because worship looks like this, to give you a definition. Worship is the practice of ascribing ultimate value to something. That's worship. It's the practice or the act of ascribing ultimate value. It isn't just the singing of songs. The singing of songs points to something else, which I'll get to in a second. It's that thing around which all of your life or anybody's life orbits. Worship is the practice of ascribing ultimate value. Next verse, verse 3. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now, I want to show you, well, let me go back to this real quick. First of all, you have to understand what's being said here is that the God of the Hebrews is bigger than every other God. Right? You have all these things in here. You have things like there are gods who are worshipped who are mountains. There's mountain gods. There's sea gods. And what this is saying is the God we worship created all those things, which means he cannot be less than those things. But I want to focus on this, just this right here. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Now, like I said, in the ancient Near East, you have lots of different kinds of spiritualities and multiple deities that people are worshiping. It's not uncommon when you go into a new land that this is the way most people would operate. They go into a new place and they say, what gods are worshipped here or what spirits are worshipped here? And then people would offer sacrifices or do whatever they needed to do for those gods that they might have favor wherever they're traveling or however long they were in, the, in this particular land. Now, 
we don't have that kind of thing. We would think to ourselves, because this is such an ancient kind of idea that the comparison of gods over other gods is kind of an old thing. Because we live in a different time. Yes, there's different kinds of spiritualities, but, but there's a different kind of understanding about what that means like for us. Remember, worship is about ascribing ultimate value to something. And the question we kind of have as we think about this for a moment is, there are things that people orient their lives around that have the ultimate value in their lives. Which means people are already ascribing ultimate value to something before they're told to do it. Have you ever seen people who have orbited their lives around money? Have you ever seen people who have placed at the center of their lives the fantasy of some kind of relationship? Have you ever seen people who have made an orbit around or made the most important thing in their life a kind of influence they might have or their physical appearance or pleasure, sex? Addicts know this better than anybody else. People in recovery will tell you this idea that their whole life was given over to something And it didn't matter whatever else happened. As long as they could have that one thing, whatever it might be, those kinds of things people make their orbit around. And no, we don't go to the temples in the same way that the ancients did, but we still have the practices of worship. No different than any other time. In search for the answer to the question, what are we doing here on earth? People start fashioning a meaning for themselves by placing things at the center of their lives. Things that they could say, this has the ultimate value above all else in my life. We don't, we don't even have to try to do this. This is the way the world works. It means everybody is already built with an inclination to do something. When they ask, what is the purpose of my life, without even trying, people are already doing something that we call worship. Intuitively, people are built in with the idea that I am supposed to be a worshiper. The question isn't, are you a worshiper or not? The question is, where is your worship directed? You see, what's being raised here in this conversation is, Is the thing that you are worshiping worthy of your soul? There's another layer to this. And this is is said better than anybody else ever heard say this. I just want you to see this. What we revere, we resemble. In other words, we become like the object of our worship. What you see is throughout the Bible, you see this over and over again. In different ways, you see this phrase more or less. What we revere, we resemble. We look like the things that we worship. Have you seen people who worship those things we talked about? Have you seen people who, as they're like orienting their lives around money or pleasure or relationships or appearances or whatever else it is or influence or superiority or whatever else it might be, have you seen how they become like those things? We become like the objects of our worship. Psalm 135 says it this way. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. This is Nations is another word for tribes or people. Sometimes you get those two words there too. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouth. Speaking of the idols, meaning these are empty things that cannot give to people what they're hoping to find. Then it says this. 
those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. People who lean on and try to build their lives around things that are otherwise completely empty will end up in that same way. Remember, nobody has to try to be a worshiper. Everybody's already worshiping. It's just what is it that you are already worshiping? We resemble what we revere. We become like these things. What happens to people who do this is that not only do they start resembling them, there's an internal kind of becoming like something else. There's this internal becoming like the things that we worship. But there's another thing. Everybody else can start seeing it too. People look at someone else and they go, there's something about them that's showing up. They're absolutely demonstrating this idea that what they belong to, they have become, and it's demonstrated out to the rest of the world. And we all know this is what's most important in their life. ask this question again. What is the only thing worthy of the worship of your soul? Because every single one of us has a default orbit, if you will. That if we if left unchecked, if left without any intention, we'll start to gravitate our lives around something else. Maybe it's been there in our past, Maybe it's going to be there in our future, but there's a lingering something in ourselves that we would start orbiting if we let ourselves go. And it's constantly vying for our attention, and it's constantly saying, make me number one in your life. Let everything else go, but make me number one. And that has the power to really undo us. We just ask this question this way. What things have been in your past or are presently vying to become the ultimate value of your life? And some of these things, in all honesty, it's not just like, you know, it it might be something really scary, like cocaine, but it also might be something like this, which is a little less scary, and it's going to sound a little bit more bizarre, something like this. Things that are really good. Things like working hard, it's pretty good. Things like brace yourselves my kids. You are not intended to build your entire life around the worship of your children. It isn't your spouse even. It isn't this church. There is only one thing worthy of the worship of your soul. Only one thing. Because you were created for that. Check this out. Here's just kind of how God's intention began. I'll go back to the screen. Here we go. Genesis 1, 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, God's intention is that we would bear his image into the world. Let me give you a sense of what that looks like. In the ancient Near East, when people, when, when people would build temples for any, for any deity in the ancient Near East, the way the temples were dedicated is like this. I'm just going really quickly into this because I want to make sure I get to it. There's a, there's a way in which temples are dedicated. They're built, they're set up, there's all these kinds of different boundaries set. On the, on the sixth day of the temple sort of establishment, the image of the God to be worshipped is placed in that temple. Meaning that everybody would come in and go, oh, this is the God they worship here. God is, this is, this is now, we're looking at creation. We're going through all the days of creation. God is establishing where his temple is, which is the entire cosmos. 
And then he has this. On the, then there's this. God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Notice the word image, a bunch. Male and female, he created them and placed them in the temple on the sixth day. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. In other words, human beings are intended to bear the image of God, which is to say resemble the image of God, which means the only way that happens is when we worship, into the rest of the cosmos. Another way to to kind of say it might look like this. Not only do we resemble it, but there's this also. What we revere, resemble. What we revere, we reflect. If resembling is kind of that internal trait where we become like the thing that we worship, the way our lives are internally oriented, there's something else to that too. What we revere, we also reflect. What we see in the story of the the, the whole account of the narrative of the Bible is this. Human beings are intended for these two things, resembling and reflecting. And human beings are essentially broken mirrors. We are a group of people who are intended for this purpose, and yet we have smudges, we have cracks in the glass, we have dirt on the mirrors, and we're a collection of people who are being repaired to become this. Because already all of us will begin to reflect something, will resemble and reflect something. The only thing that your, your destiny, what you were intended to do, is to resemble and reflect the thing that you revere, which is all, you, you cannot avoid that fact. But you were intended to revere the one thing that enables you to give off, to bear, to reflect the image of God himself. That's worship. Verse 6, 90, Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. For he's our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. How many of you guys grew up in church recognize that song? Yep, it's a little, written a little differently. And we are the people. This is always the, I remember, this is one of those songs that my friend's mom would sing in the car. You know, it was like, oh my gosh, we might be the people of his pasture, but put your hands on the steering wheel and open your eyes. Um, now, I want you to notice the verbs that are in this passage. The verbs are verbs of submission. Bowing down, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> kneeling before God, this whole idea. And all of it comes as an acknowledgement of who God is. He's our God, and we're the people of his pasture, meaning he's our shepherd. In the simplest definition that I could think of, the most often used metaphor in the Bible, more than any, I mean, as much as anything else, probably second, maybe father, about God, is the image of a shepherd. Meaning the kind of person that we resemble and we reflect is this kind of God who leads as a shepherd does a flock of sheep. And we respond to him with these words, bowing down and kneeling in worship. Now, the question is this, what does that look like? Because people sing, we talked about at the beginning of the, the beginning of the passage is this idea of singing and shouting praises and extolling him with thanksgiving. These are all words of praise. Those are all the activities of people. But is that the most important way in which people submit their lives to God? Is it just simply the songs that we sing that have a right place on the weekend service? Or is there something greater? Take a look at these verses. I'm going to get to these kind of quickly, but I want you to see these. 
Isaiah 29 says, these people come to me with their, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, meaning people are singing songs and saying the right stuff, but they don't mean it. Hosea 6.6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is talking about ritual sacrifice is part of the worship. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings, meaning I don't just want you to come in, do the right quote-unquote religious stuff, and then go on living as if nothing else matters. I don't want that. Lastly, this. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, this is in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your, your entire lives are your sacrifice. That's your true and proper worship. So in other words, what, what the Bible seems to be pointing to is there's a bigger picture for what it means to walk with and to understand worship with God. It's not simply the songs that we sing. It's how we live our every, how our lives reflect and resemble the one that we worship all the time. You know, there's a danger in contemporary kind of spirituality, which is this. People say, I really like the idea of God. I love God. I mean, I, I'm, I got all kinds of stuff. I want to I, I look at the Bible and take what I want from it so that I can benefit, which means that there's, that's, a, that's an on-ramp to something. But what I just want to tell you is this. What we see is, you know, in the, well, I should say this, what I see for a lot of folks is I want God to be essentially a, a better version of myself. I want to shape a God who, come, who has different kind of faith components and different kinds of stuff that I mostly agree with, and I'll form my God and I'll worship him, which is essentially this. You are forming a version of yourself to worship when you do that. It is dangerous to have parts of different gods come together different spiritualities, whatever you might call it, because then all of a sudden you don't have a God that argues with you. You don't have to have a God that you disagree with, that you go, oh, I disagree with that, but you're God. It's like, well, we always agree. That's, we have a wonderful partnership. So when the writer here is talking about the idea of we are the people of his pasture, meaning we don't get to be the shepherd for God. We simply get to go, if that's where you're leading me, even if I don't want to go there, I go, and that's where worship starts to really take on some teeth. Worship has this capacity to aim our hearts. It rightly places us in the place where we were designed. It honors God as who he is. And in that moment, we start fulfilling our destiny. Even in the most trying circumstances, check this out. This is Psalm 57. This is David, right? He did the King David is the most famous king in all the Bible. He is um, under duress. He's being attacked by people who don't want him to be king. And he's hiding out in some caves. He writes this. I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts. Sounds like where you work, doesn't it, some of you guys? <laughs> my cubicle, right? Men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp swords. These are not attractive men. Anyway, no, but these are, you get the idea of the metaphor here about this accusation, okay? Now, the next thing you expect him to say, which he does say in other psalms, is something like, God, help me, bail me out. God, where are you? I need help from the ravenous beast. You've got to do something, wipe them out, which he does pray all the time. But notice the next thing he says. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
in the midst of the most difficult, he's literally holding on for his life in a cave. People are attacking him, and he says, he takes a moment and he goes, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Somehow, in those moments, there becomes a little bit of a a centering effect of what God intends to do with him and through him. We have a my son has a friend who lives next, next door to us, and um, the two of them could not be really much different on the out, just to look at them. Um, my son is, you know, on the smaller side, he's like a medium-sized kid, and this, this, his friend is super tall. His friend's African-American. Um, he's almost like as tall as me. He's in fifth grade. It's like, dude. And he's like, he's an awesome basketball player, and he's left-handed. Some of you guys know the value of a left-handed basketball. He's unbelievable. His dad's a great, great guy. His mom, um, his mom just about a year ago, finished up her final sort of treatment. It was pretty aggressive for um, breast cancer. Now, she has experienced, some of you have family or friends, or it's you who have gone through the treatment of cancer, and you know how unbelievably brutal this is. But she, <laughs> it's not uncommon for me to go over to try to get Dylan from my oldest, from Nigel's house, go over there and to knock on the door and to hear Chelsea, is her name, singing at the top of her lungs. I mean, and it's like loud gospel music. It is like, I'm like knocking, like, we got to eat dinner or we got to go. And I can't, you know, we're calling the house, but they can't hear the phone because they're singing and just going crazy. Now, <laughs> finally, you know, she, she'll bring Dylan over or the two boys will come back over to our house or something like that. And I'll go, oh, we were knocking on the door or, or Dylan might have come over and try to see if Nigel wanted to hang out. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And she says it like, she says it's so great. She looks at me like, obviously, this is what I'd be doing. She goes, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was just getting my praise on. And she looks at me like, you know, because you obviously always do that too. <laughs> and so I have to respond, being a wonderful hypocrite that I am. I just go, oh, yeah, I told, obviously. How can you, if, what else could be more? Obviously, you gotta, you're getting your praise on because that's what I do all the time. I'm surprised I'm even talking now because usually I'm just getting my praise on. <laughs> She's the living embodiment of this idea. Things are not going well. Things are falling apart in my life. And the only thing that rightly centers my entire life is this. Be exalted, O God, above all the other gods, above everything else. Above everything else I'm worried about, everything else that's capturing me, everything else that is a big deal. It's not to the exclusion of saying, God, I need your help, because we're going to do that next week in a really powerful way. But worship is the acknowledgement that you were intended to revere not just an extension of your own desires, but God himself. She gets it. So what do we do? You know, worship is bigger than the songs, right? It's not, it's not just the songs. But yet, the very beginning of this passage starts with, come to the Lord, sing, shout, extol with thanksgiving. These are all, these are all things that still matter. You know, Isaiah describes that the hills will sing and the trees will clap, or maybe I got that backwards. I don't know. It just seems more logical the trees would clap. They have branches, but I don't remember the metaphor exactly. It's Isaiah 55. You can read it later. Psalm 95 says, shout and sing. So what do we do? I've had some people in my life who are reluctant to the idea of singing out loud and shouting and worship and that kind of stuff who have said to me, all that matters is that you live your life. It's like, you know, it's just how you live your life that's like, that's all that matters. The rest of it is so irrelevant. These are people who like kind of resist the idea of music out of like at any capacity on a church. So they're like, you know, I try to show up a little bit late and I just want to go there for the teaching and then I want to get out of there because it doesn't matter about the singing. I grew up in churches that were kind of like that. 
The other side of the spectrum says, the only thing that matters in my life is the singing. You know, I need it. I got to do it. It's the only thing that matters. And the question is, what do we do? Which one matters most? Put it this way. You ever been, well, those of you who have kids or maybe you have a nephew or someone valued in your life like a parent or anybody else, you ever thrown them a birthday party? You ever been a part of a birthday party? Some of you are like, I've never been to a birthday party. I'm really sorry. Okay, I just want you to know. For the rest of you who have been to a birthday party, there's a moment. I'll just speak for my own son. What we do in our family, my own family, what we do is this. We have a party. My, my oldest is kind of, he is the worst situation because his, his birthday is December 29th, so he's never around like his friends when he has his birthday. It's like more uncles and aunts right after Christmas. It's like, you know, it's, it's you know, talk about how, what happens to a kid when they get too many presents within a four-day span. It's crazy. Um, but we have to have a party for him an, another time because, so he can invite his buddies. So he's decided he's going to have a nerd roller skating party, which I'll be dressing up for. Not that much. I mean, I kind of, it's, not, it's already there. I'm already there, I realize, but <laughs> save it. Okay. At a birthday party, here's what we do. We sing songs. There's a ritual, what the church would call a liturgy. You like do some stuff. There's, a ga- there's games or activity or whatever. Then you gather everybody together, and there's candles in some capacity on some kind of you know, sugary bread that you eat, right? It's all kind of the same thing. And you light the candles, and you blow them out, and you sing the song. Everybody knows the same song. We've been singing it for centuries, I'm assuming, right? I don't know how old the song is, but it's old enough. If you worked at a restaurant where you're, you know, supposed to sing a different one. You know, I worked at Disneyland. We had to sing a different song. And it's the least enthusiastic thing you ever do. Hey, it's someone's birthday. They're at table 47. Put another candle on your birthday cake. And when you do, wish you'll make a birthday to you. A birthday to you. Happy birthday. Okay, cool. Get out of here. You know, like, it's like, that's the... Now, you sing the song because that's what you do. At our family, what we do also is we, we, we speak affirmations to the person. Like, here's what I love about you. We make sure people don't say it in the third person or, sec, you know, like, they have to say it in the second person, meaning, here's what I love about you, why I appreciate you, what makes you a great brother or a great friend or a great son or whatever it is. We say all of these things. Now, is it important? Now, do I, after I do that, do I not live the rest of my life as if I love my son? And if I was to say, hey, buddy, it's time for your birthday party, we're not going to have one because we already love you so much, and we don't need to demonstrate any of that to you, how devastating that would be. In other words, the one necessitates the other. We sing the songs and we do the kind of stuff that we do. We receive communion and we respond together in prayer and we extol God with worship and thanksgiving and praise. Some of us might be so bold enough to do things we never do in any other place, which is like raise our hands. I love that we have the music so loud in here. Some of you are like, why is it always so loud? Well, and, you know, we get fewer emails now than we used to because, you know, it's just kind of the way we do it. And there's earplugs in the back. Because I am so terrified of you hearing my voice sing. A lot of times I'm walking up here towards the end of the message and I'm kind of like, I'm singing. So I have to turn my mic off in case they turn me on too early because it'll be like, whoa. All of a sudden I'm in the thing and people are going to be like, whoa. Okay. But I sing. I don't sing any other place that loud in my life. I raise my hands sometimes. I mean, it's like I do this stuff because it matters because my life and my worship They need each other. The worship that I have on the weekend, the worship of my whole life, they need each other. One does not excuse the other. One necessitates the other. So we sing songs with a full voice. We sing with joy. We respond with full voice. 
And it matters to push yourself to be saying, God, I'm aiming my heart at you. I'm almost praying these songs out in the way that I'm saying these things, that my heart might be aimed at you so that the rest of my life takes on a different shape. That's why I do it, because you are God and I'm not. I need to remind myself, and I'm almost praying that, praying that into reality. Because I may not have lived like it this week, but I need it to become the reality that I want to become. Secondly is this, so we sing out loud. We do it, because our soul needs it. Secondly is this, if you notice in the passage, everything is not come let you or come let me worship and bow down. They're all, they're all first person plurals. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before God. He's our God. Which means it's really critical that we understand the us component of worship. What it means for us to be together in a community of people who worship. I always get nervous when people talk about how they're plugged into like 14 different churches. They tell me sometimes they're like, you know, hey, you know, I'm just, I go to like four, I go to church here on Thursday and I go there on Wednesday and I'm here on Sunday and then Sunday night I go here, whatever else it is. Now I'm grateful that people are connected to, you know, God in that way. But what that also tells me sometimes is I'm unconnected from everybody. I want to only be connected to God, but I want you to understand that there is a corporate nature to the idea of worship. We were intended to worship as a community. And so it isn't just simply that we, we go and hear songs and sing the songs. It's that we do it together. That matters. Something happens to us when we worship together, which is one of the reasons why I despise this wall. I mean, we get along with it, but I despise it because it inhibits our ability to worship together as a community. It really does. You need each other to worship in the fullness of what you are intended to be. You need each other. Worship is intended to be done in community. And lastly, there's a long view of worship I want you to see, which is this. Remember that we, what we revere, we resemble, and we also reflect. I love the way the Apostle Paul writes this in his second letter to the Corinthians. It says this in chapter 3, verse 18. We all, with unveiled faces, he's speaking about Moses who was veiled, you know, in the, in the desert when he's talking to his people. We all who with unveiled faces, unlike Moses, reflect the Lord's glory. Notice the word reflect. What God intends to do with us is to reflect God's glory into the, into the world. Our being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Meaning, we are constantly being transformed into better and better mirrors. Constantly. The way in which we are, the, our progress isn't, we don't expect people to be perfectly put together when they come in here. I'm sorry if anybody ever gave you that impression, but my passion is that people would go, hey, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with my life. I feel like there's some brokenness. And God, here's what God does in his spirit. Reflect God's glory and that we are being transformed. Not that we have been, we are being transformed. God is at work working in us to challenge, to shape, to mold, to remove the things that obscure our purpose in life, that we might honor him and that his glory might be told in the community. The most impossible story, the thing that has to be unleashed in the community is God's glory unleashed in the community. And the way that is done is by people who authentically and with all they've got worship. That's how God's released in the community in impossible ways. Now, I want you to understand something. As this dramatic moment just happened because the AC just shut off. <laughs> that was perfect timing. I want you to understand it from someone else who can tell you about what it is to worship. 
Ethan, why don't you come up here? Give us a few moments. You can clap for that too. Someone clapped once. You can clap a couple more times. Okay. Just thinking about Ethan's final, you know, we didn't, by the way, like months ago when we planned this service, like in terms of what we were going to say, it wasn't going to be on worship. Um, well, I mean, it was, and we didn't know Ethan, this is going to be Ethan's last, all this stuff. And there is no more fitting way to explain worship than to have our worship leader do it, so. This one. I wrote down some of this because I don't want to miss anything of what I want to tell you. Um, I, I love this church. Despite our faults, and as we find our way from time to time, I'm grateful to be a part of uh, a beautifully broken group of people seeking to follow Jesus. In this place, in this very place, I've seen people give their lives to Jesus. I've seen people be baptized. I've seen uh, and heard people share their stories for the first time. I've seen um, people healed, addictions being broken and um, people letting go and worshiping like never before. And so I know and have experienced that this is a worshiping church. Um, I bless that and affirm that in you today. My prayer um, for you is that you would see and believe that God wants to do more um, and not just more of the same, even though that would be great in and of itself. He wants to do something new. And I know that somewhere within us is a hunger for God's presence and his power that hasn't been fully unleashed, or maybe we've even lost hope that it ever will. But I know that hunger is there because um, we keep showing up week after week. And you and I have seen each other basically every week for the last um, four years, some of us even longer than that. And... um, we wouldn't keep coming back if, if we didn't um, hunger for more, just, just want more of the same. We want more, and um, we have to believe that. Uh, I want to bless you this morning to be a community that's not just satisfied with good, but is hungering for a move of God. Something that no one on this stage could conjure up for you. Um, And so my prayer is that you wouldn't sit back and wait for someone to do that for you. Um, There is no perfect church service. There's no perfect song, no perfect message. There's only God's presence. And there is more than we've ever experienced before if we believe that and hunger for it and worship like that. Like we actually mean it, like we actually need Jesus. So let's stand together and we're going to worship together and respond. Let's pray. Father, might this be the richest expression of our worship in our lives? Might we join in this band which has led us so well for so long? Not because it's the band, but because it's you. Father, we want our hearts to be oriented toward you. We want our lives to reflect your goodness into the world. Might you hear our prayer. Might we worship differently than we ever had because it matters more than we ever realized. Father, would you hear our prayer as we set it to music? Would this group be a group responding in joy, responding in exuberance, responding with all that we have to all that you are? So Father, hear our songs as we sing. In your name, amen. Here I am to 